Hi, and welcome to the podcast channel for podcastmybusiness.com.au and for video for contentmadeeasy.com.au. And today we're welcoming back Danny Davis from lct.org.au because we wanted to have a chat about the recent federal budget. And in our last interview, we were talking about a wellness or well-being budget. And I wanted to touch on that and see how it's been good for the not-for-profit or for-purpose sector. How are you, Danny? I'm very good. Thank you for having me. No, that's great. Look, thank you for coming back. Yeah, because we were touched on something at the last interview and I thought, ooh, a wellness or well-being budget is not really a, I guess, a mainstream way of looking at it. And, in fact, the media have not been looking at that at all. So how, explain to us what you mean by a wellness or well-being budget. Yeah, well, look, I mean, to be fair to the media, and we wouldn't want to do that, but um, uh, I think um, governments perhaps squibbed on a little bit themselves. Um, They've basically put some funding towards developing towards a wellbeing budget rather than making this actually a wellbeing budget in itself. Mm. So the earlier announcements that that's what they were going to do are perhaps pulled back a little, uh, maybe a little overambitious. There's some commentary in the expert uh, as, you know, discussion gossip groups of, uh, yeah, possibly a good thing not to rush it. Um, time will tell, and it's just going to take us a little bit more time to tell. Look, having said that, um, you know, the budget is framed, and, and I'll differentiate here, it is framed with a number of kind of well-being objectives in mind, but that is not sufficient to making it a well-being budget. Just being focused on community and well-being does not make a well-being budget. A well-being budget Mm. is about bringing um, an agreed set of social measures into the planning framework. So budgets have historically all been about the expenditure and it's about the effect of the expenditure on the budget, on the future Mm. outcomes of the financial measures only. A well-being budget implies that you're looking at what is the social and economic social impact of the expenditure that you are planning? Are you going to make a difference to people's well-being based on all of the items you have and the actions and activities that you've committed to in the budget? They haven't gone there yet, and in fact, what they have promised is pretty light on. And I needed to do quite a bit of excavating to find it. Mm. And what it promised is that they were going to uh, provide an independent paper on some well-being measures during 2023. So, but I'll be a little patient with them at this point. Mm. Okay. Well, I'm going to call a spade a spade because um, during the last interview we were talking about greenwashing and whether or not there would be some greenwashing in the budget and it seems there's been a industrial laundromat full of greenwashing. Yeah, look, again, it depends on where you want to come with this. And, and uh, um, I, I'm, I, I've tried to take the, 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 the step back and get a contextual view of what we're looking at. Um, and, look, you know, this is what I do with organisations is you go in and you kind of read the tea leaves, have a look at the artefacts they produce, a budget, mm-hmm a press release or whatever, and go, so what were they thinking? 
And mm-hmm. what does that thinking imply about where we're going and what might be happening? And I, I you know, the bigger organ, the bigger the organisation, the harder that is to do because the less coherent the thinking is. Mm. You know, the, the thinking at the top is not the thinking at the bottom and they all need to come together and that is just massively difficult. Um, I, I think I will give them some credit. It's out of character, but I might. Um, on there isn't... They haven't turned the volume up on the washing, be it green or otherwise, to an enormously high degree. And I think that actually separates them from the previous government. Um, the previous government had a lot of, you know, splashy marketing terms, you, you know, your three-word slogans um, yeah. with very little behind it, sometimes money behind it, um, pork yeah. barrelling of various sorts or, or whatever, but very little depth. It feels to me like this budget, trying to read all of the different tea leaves that are involved in it. Um, first of all, it's, it, it's very much an interim. People have described it as kind of being almost like a half-year budget, and it is only four to five months into into their into their term, um, which could have either been a we're going to set a massive ideological shift here. Um, or we're going to be full of spin about an ideological shift that we would like to motivate. Mm. They actually seem to have resisted. Um, mm. And I, I, I feel that there are at least signs of attempts to bring discipline. Um, and, and discipline in terms of the budget mostly hits what are the areas that are just really broken that we can't not do something about? And yeah. there's nothing wrong with that because. Previously, they have been left broken. <laughs> People have walked past them, and, and it, it hadn't seemed... Um, I, I mirror this, by the way, with what I observe in terms of bureaucratic behaviour in, in, in uh, engagements I have across various different people and try and read how that all flows together. I think there was a despondency previously that things just couldn't be fixed. Broken things wouldn't be fixed. The, the bureaucrats knew they were, they were there. They were hurting because they, generally speaking, gross generalisation, want to fix them, and there was just no capacity to do it. I feel this budget has addressed the, the biggest areas of internal stupidity and pain, but only mm. in a measured kind of way, um, and mostly with an eye. Uh, it, it feels like kind of preparing the ground for then doing something else. And well, talking, sorry, talking about an area that they want to focus on and I think they're finally woken up. And it's interesting, the side of government that introduced it is the NDIS. Yeah. And that's something that hits the not-for-profit slash for-purpose sector slap bang in the middle. Mm. So is that, I wouldn't call it a conflict of interest, is it a dichotomy of needs because you... Being in that sector, NDIS is great, but maybe you are aware and seeing that, you know what, there's some, any new government thing, like the pink bats and everything else, there's always scammers that rush in yeah, and trying to make money. Is that where NDIS is at the moment? Okay. So um, I'll, I'll just, before I kind of come to that, because that is a very good mm. question, um, 
I kind of said that they've been trying to fix and maybe get some some foundational ground, but they didn't miss the opportunity to do some things that are on their ideological front, mm. um, and they have very specifically talked about doing more in health, more in aged care, more in family care, more in the NDIS. Um, and, again, there were areas where they had you know, ideologically and politically and from promises said, we will do something to make this better, and they have, um, with reason. And I think they've kind of, it feels like they've taken the approach of let's call out what's broken. Let's actually admit the faults mm. without trying to huge, big stick fix them. Mm. NDIS is broken. Mm. Aged care is broken. They haven't fixed them. They've just kind of gone in to patch some of the areas of worst pain. So um, there is more money because there hasn't been enough and, and people are, are, are suffering quite cruelly in places. Um, they appear to have put money, one thing I was interested to look at, uh, 200 and 300 extra places in the NDIA. So one of the things is the, the organisation itself was known for not having been able to make permanent appointments using contractors who were more expensive and on short-term thinking, um, not being able to address client needs, not being able to change the way that things operate. You know, I had a little look at that and I figured that it was something like about 2% of the additional funds they put in they've put to additional staff. And I think that's not unreasonable. In fact, possibly even a little low if you think about it. You know, what what percentage of time, effort and money should be spent on making sure the money is working well? Two or 300 people is not going to go a long way in that organisation and we don't know the detail of where they're going. Um, clearly they need to do something about some terrible rorting. Um, uh, the, the, you know, you such as well, you, you you know you read of the, the the criminal gangs out of New South Wales, etc., and and uh, and I'm sure they're not alone. Mm. Um, you know we don't know the detail of it, but there are um, there are clearly some people who have been taking advantage of it in a, in a distinctly criminal way. Um, and I think they're also across a number of their, their their platforms, they've they've had people who have been taking advantage in a more systemic and uh, uh, no, not not white collar crime, just just unethical uh, kind of basis. Yeah. Um, and look, yeah. they called out um, specifically in the aged care space um, with their home care packages. An artifact of a system that they put in place a few years ago is people are taking twenty, thirty percent of people's packages in administrative and management costs, and that's just unconscionable. It really is, but that's how the system's been. Allowed to operate. It's not criminal, but it is not right. Um, yes. Yeah. Well, I, I had a client a few years ago that does offer aged care services in the home. They're a private company. And the difficulty for them is yes, they're a private company, they're for profit. And as we discussed last time, every organization, even LCT, has to make money. Mm-hmm one way or another. Um, so how do they make money without crossing the line 
to the 20 or 30%, which is what they need to make to actually make money. And it's, and it is a difficult thing, but, uh, you know, as was pointed out, um, at a, a, a sector, um, conference that I was at recently, um, you know, yes, it's important that there is a viable sector and a viable industry and, and the, the organisations in it are, are making profits or if they're not for profit, they're making reserves that are sufficient to cope with cash flow and growth and change. But the change is not about us. It actually, we are only here to serve the clients um, and to be fair and blunt, we're really here to serve the sector. Um, so, you know, we need to be viable for government, we need to be viable to produce a high-value service to clients. Um, and there's no evidence that that 30 to 40% margin that was being taken, sorry, 20 to 30% margin that's being taken, um, was re- resulting in better services for clients. Um, so, uh, again, I think this comes down to a little bit more sophistication in the programs. Um, people will always try to take advantage of whatever government program is out there if there is money on offer, um, and that will range from criminal to unethical to just, really, <laughs> do you have to do that? Mm. Um, yeah. Fixing that is requires government to be a little bit more sophisticated and nuanced in what it does to actually have better management of its expenditure to not have programs that are so simplistic and, and so uh, easily rotable. Um, it needs them to spend more time actually governing and having some stewardship over what they're doing and saying, are we getting good outcomes for our our money? Um, it's a challenge for them because they always kind of fall back on the, uh, the safe space of, you know, tender probity, you know, we can't get too involved. And sort of like, no. Mm. <laughs> You can run tender probity over here and make investment decisions, but you can still manage the farm and have visibility and outs- uh, understanding of what you're doing. It's this whole out- outsourcing mentality that people have had pain for for 20 or 30 years now that you can outsource the delivery, but you can't outsource the ownership. Um, and they, they have tried to do that through some of their programs and are, are reaping the, the rewards. So, look, I'm hoping that the commitment that they've made to improve the resourcing of their management results in improved management. Uh, but, again, jury's out. And I, and I think that's my wash-up of the whole budget, really, is it seems to show an intent for diligent hard work and addressing the issues, but it's four or five months in and the issues are ahead of them. So they've done well, the easy ones they've done the obvious ones they've done and, and they seem to have resisted the, the flashy big ticket things but the hard work is ahead well it's interesting because the sydney morning herald and the age are running a series for quite a long time about well-being and wanting to have well-being as the true measure of gdp rather than the old traditional industrial output now, there's lots of data points on that, lots of information in that. So out of all of that, what would you like to see in relation for lct.org.au yeah. and the sector? Yeah. So, look, they're tied in the whole idea of a well-being budget is to have this intermingling between the social outcomes, the effect 
you know, the, 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 the good that you are doing for the people you're trying to serve and have measures of whether they are actually having well-being in their lives mixed with these financial mm. measures. Um, there is plenty of research and investigation. UTS did a, a lovely report recently on sustainability of aged care um, that says, you know, just pouring money, more money into it is not going to make a viable sector and it's not going to make a better service delivery. Um, we actually need to get real... Um, structural change, and I want to back off and not say structural reform because structural reform is about regulation and many of these things are not solvable by regulation. It's like saying, you know, what we need and what Link is trying to push is is a disruption. Um, if you were looking at creating a, you know, let's use ones we know better, a better banking interface through 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 your mobile phone, and you think you can actually get some mm. uh, real systemic disruption in the way that a, a sector works. And who knows when was the last time you were in, physically in a bank trying to withdraw cash out mm. of the counter? You know, it's just something we don't need to do anymore. Um, and thank God for that. It's better economically. It's more more you know uh, lower cost of doing business. And it's just an easier way to live. Um, it needed disruption. It didn't need. To, it, yeah, there was change in regulation, but that's a follower to enable and to smooth the course. Um, there's too much of a temptation amongst a lot of the the thinking is the commentators that it is about regulatory change and structural reform is about regulation. It needs to be about better services. It needs to be about. Um, you know, shaking up the way that services are delivered. So we're we're delivering services that are not massively dissimilar to some of the services that people are putting 20 to 30% margin on at zero margin. Now, we're not doing all of them, et cetera, and some of the reason for that is because we've got regulatory hurdles that are preventing us from doing more. So we're reaching out to government to try to uh, release some of those barriers and actually work on the design of their new program to break down some of those barriers that artificially stop service provision in other areas, et cetera, to allow new models to occur, to allow digitally enhanced models to occur, to disrupt the sector of care, to make it easier to get access to services, easier for people to, to make use of what is available, um, take some of the cost of delivery out of the sector. It's not that different from, from things that have happened in banking or transport or elsewhere. They haven't happened in the in the services, in the in the age and the disability in those sectors. And there's obviously always going to be a huge face-to-face -face component of care, um, but there's a lot of um, treacle and mud that people need to drag themselves to to get a tiny piece of care out the other end of that. That's where you're going to get the major change, not in the amount that's spent, but in the effect that you have. And again, I'm just saying we're so not going to get there without... Yeah having the management capacity and the will in the organisations that deliver it to participate in change can't happen without them. <laughs> can't disrupt government out of the sector. They have yeah, to participate. Exactly. No choice. <laughs> yeah. So is there... Okay, so here comes the curly question. You thought the other ones were curly. This is the curly question. So... Is there a large element of what I call the CYA syndrome, the cover-your-ass syndrome in the sector? Look, yes, I think that's how the sector sits and why it's ripe for disruption. Um, you know, mm. there's there's a lot of people who just um, 
spend a lot of their time covering their ass within their own swim lane. Um, and they're looking mm-hmm. after their organisation, trying to protect it from, from threat and damage. And those, look, those threats and the, the, the potential liabilities in the sector are very real. But if you come back to, and this is what Link's been able to do, and, and, and I'm a big believer in these things are, are governance-led, really at the board level, at the leadership level, coming back and saying, what is our purpose? Why are we here? Mm. Are we here to do the same job we did yesterday and and be better at mm. doing it internally? Or are we here to make a difference to mm. the consumer? And what's the mm. biggest thing that our effort can do to make a difference to those people? Is it is it trying harder in the face-to-face every day and giving better customers? Well, yes. Mm. But at the end of the day, if that's only 5% of what you do and it should be 70% of what you do, that's where you can make the change. <laughs> that 5% or that 70 it should be better, but you make yeah. systemic change by changing the, 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 the balance of how these things operate, how the sector flows, how it all fits together. Um, and for us, that's a lot of reaching out across different areas of government. Um, and I think that's the real challenge here. And the, 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 the cover your ass thing, I think I'm going to point, yes, it's within the sector, mm. but it's within government. And this just can't stress enough that the sector, you know, other sectors have gone through disruption and these sectors haven't. And one of the reasons, not the only reason, one of the reasons is that government has to be party to it. It cannot happen to them. It has to happen with them. And they need to have the attitude and the mindset and the leadership, which seems to be there and it's not loud in the materials mm. that I'm seeing, but it is, I'm, I'm seeing some signs. It is going to need a little bit more loud leadership so long as they don't go all the way to spin. <laughs> um, and it's going to mm. need preparedness for them to um, be willing to get past the, 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 the CYA um, and into, okay, how can we actually make a difference? What would need to happen? How can we actually digest that? And look, I'm going to do full circle here. That's that's where a well-being budget comes into it. We can make a difference. Mm. Here are the specific things that we're going to need to do to make that difference. If we do not do these things, the needle is not going to move on the outcome. Because otherwise mm. you fall back to, well, we're going to do these things. We're spending some money, aren't we good? Ends up, yeah, we're just throwing money at the wall and hoping for the best. Ends up people accountable for risk. Cover your ass. Do the same thing you did yesterday. Yeah. It's safe. Don't make change. You'll be blamed. Whereas if you get the, the whole point of this whole exercise is to get measures in place that say that's the measure today, your job is to take the measure to here. If you don't do that, you will be blamed. Find things that are going to make a difference. So, Well, it seems like, and this is across the board, not just in one sector, but it seems to be a lot of um, fulfilling the definition of insanity. Yeah, absolutely. Doing the same thing and hoping each day and hoping for a different yeah, outcome. Yeah, and again, I'm I'm coming down to to my bias, which is governance led, which is saying governance has to have the ambition and reinvestigate why we're here and what we want to serve, but then needs to actually they are responsible for saying how we're going to measure it. Because if mm. all we're going to measure is the expenditure. All you're going to get is the insanity of trying the same thing again because the person's going to cover their ass and take no risk. If the measure is on mm. the outcome 
and you're actually saying you're doing the forward-looking governance, which is my whole kit of enhanced governance practices for future value creation, saying what is the impact going to be from the activities you have currently committed to? What's in your portfolio? What's everything you got? If you're in a company, you know, got a project program portfolio that's nice, you can measure it. If you're in government, you've actually got to measure across the sector in stewardship. It's not just the stuff you do, it's the stuff Link is doing, it's the stuff that organization, stuff all the different state, federal, local, not for profits doing. So if all of those things happen, is it going to move the needle or, or are all of those things just more of the same? So that's mm. the art form. That's what we hope mm. for out of a really ambitious transformation in the way that things are, are governed and therefore the thinking. Ultimately here you want to put measures and behaviours in pl- place that change decision-making on a day-to-day basis. It's not the big decisions you see in the budget. This is why I come back to see what's the character behind it. It's not the big decisions in the budget. Mm. That's just the big threshold stuff. It's the day-to-day behaviours. Mm. Stop the cover in your ass. Mm. Start opening up and inviting, I, I need to find something here that's going to make a difference. Do you know something? How about that guy over there? Mm. No, I'm not doing that, but that one sounds mm. good. That's mm. the behaviour, the mm. day-to-day decision-making you want to influence and making that look at outcomes and not just financial is where you want to hit. Well, just to finish up, I've got friends who do work in the for-purpose sector. It seems one of their biggest frustrations is that the the people at the top don't seem interested in what the people at the coalface have to say, what they're dealing with, what they're coping with. So let's hope that's what changes more, and that's what I expect a wellness budget and a well-being budget also focuses on is all those personal points rather than money points. So thank you very much for that, Danny. Most appreciated. And that's Danny Davis from lct.org.au. And uh, thanks very much for your time.